This episode of The Wrong Station is brought to you in partnership with Woebegone. Woebegone is the story of Mike Walters, who discovers a mysterious and violent online game. What begins as an exploration of an alternate reality game with real-life consequences quickly becomes a search for the technology that makes the game possible, and an exploration of what it means to seek, to maintain, and to use power. For fans of eccentric, single-person narrated audio dramas like the Magnus Archives, with a queer perspective and lens, new episodes can be listened to every Wednesday, each with a brand new, all-original soundtrack. You can find Woe Begone, spelled woe.begone, wherever you listen to your podcasts, or check out woebegonepod.com for episodes and transcripts. And thank you for supporting both shows. You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. Arrive at night, dark and windy down on Ashling Street, with standing pools of water so blue with salt beneath the orange light they cannot freeze. The first floor of the building dark, yawning behind the grimy glass, stifling the moment you're inside, nothing there but an elevator leading skyward. She stepped up to its steel face and slammed a cold knuckle into the button, which did not light up. You've been having trouble sleeping, someone had said to her recently. I've been having trouble with a lot of things. Fragments of memory ripped through her as she walked, like the wreckage of clouds before a high wind. She didn't even remember who that conversation had been with. The elevator finally clunked and groaned into life, its unexpected doorframe of chipped Kelly Green rattling as the machine clanged down down and down to the empty floors toward her. Then, chime, the doors howled open. Forward onto the grimy tiles inside, turn and face the street for one last moment, the red reflection of the medical building's burning neon cross reflected in those saline puddles outside, colder than any ice. Then the doors ground shut, and the world outside was lost, There were grease marks on the inside of the elevator door, left by human fingers, 
as if someone had tried to claw their way out of here. She checked the directory. The words, Sleep Clinic, chiseled into yellow paper, taped beside the unmarked steel button for the third floor with flaking yellow tape. The other floors, unmarked. She clipped the button, and the grape machine around her moaned like an animal and began to haul her up. Clunk. Chime. The doors yawned open on a dark and empty floor, only for a moment, only long enough to reveal a silent vastness of dark holes and dust-rhymed server banks, all humming softly, blinking with dim red and green lights as whatever intelligence inside dreamed. Then groan, clunk, moan, and she was hauled skyward again. Clunk. Chime. The doors opened on an empty office, this time with white lights on and blazing. An empty waiting room crouched to her right, with pleasant chairs and wide windows onto outer darkness. A check-in desk sat politely in front of her, with nobody sitting behind it. An empty hall with closed doors on the left. Hello? No answer. Hello? Nothing. She waited. No place to sit right here, and some part of her was worried that if she went into that waiting room, she'd wait all night, forgotten. So she stood, with her bag and heavy coat hanging from her thin, pale arms. Tired. She could feel sleep like an atmospheric pressure all around her, pushing in on her skin, her eyelids. She wanted to slide down against the wall to the hard, gray carpet floor and sleep. But she knew that the moment she laid down, sleep would withdraw beyond the reach of her arms, leaving her exhausted but alert in a cold void. Hello? Still no answer. But after a few moments, a door closed down the hall, and a black-haired woman in a lab coat appeared, seeming less to walk toward her than to shimmer into being a few paces nearer every second. Hello, I'm... I'm here for an appointment. Health card? Here. The woman examined it under a hard light, spent a few moments clacking information into a computer on heavy keys, handed back the card. You'll be in room six. She had a kind voice, but her face was hidden behind a medical mask and glasses which reflected the light into flat discs. She didn't ask for or offer any name. Washrooms down the hall. Get changed and make yourself comfortable. The camera in the room is off until you go to sleep. Someone will be with you before too long. Mumbled, thanks. Then down the hall toward room six, seeming less to walk than to shimmer into being a few paces closer every time. The door opened with a throaty sound, revealing a small cell with twin bed, lamp, chair, and bedside table, a duvet thin and midnight blue, the sheets paper white, some hooks on the wall for her coat and bag, a mess of wires boiling from a port in the wall, all channeled into a milky plastic bin. She sat down on the bed and put her head in her hands. She was tired. After a few moments, she drew a deep breath 
and stood, turning on the bedside lamp and flicking off the overhead light. That made the room feel less bleak. Sleep pressed in closer around her, but she knew that if she reached for it, it would slip away. She changed into her sleeping clothes, yoga pants and a t-shirt, wandered down the hall to a washroom tiled in bloody crimson, returned. Other guests at the clinic were only vague, dark shapes, hunched shades of human beings who rustled in and out of the airtight rooms, avoiding eye contact. She was no different. Back inside the safety of her cell, she lay back on the cot and held her phone in the air above her. It was all the same as always. Images and discourse about the war, forest fires, a new outbreak, children pulled from the rubble of a bombed hospital. She clicked the phone dark and threw it onto the bedding beside her and stared up at the ceiling. But the images played there, too. She wished she had someone she wanted to call. She desperately wanted a person. But even if she had one, it was too late at night to call anyone now. Too late. Too lonely. Too tired. A timid knock came at the door. Come in. The sleep technician. A large, shapeless softness of a man with lifeless dark eyes. Are you ready? She went and sat in the chair, and he gathered up the basket of wires and stood behind her, loomed over her. She saw his shadow fall on the wall before her, even though that was the direction the light was coming from. The sound of his soft paws behind her, fumbling at electrodes and conductive paste. This will hold the sensors in place, he murmured. The paste in its jar was thick, a sort of grayish green. A little bit cold, I'm sorry. His fingers burrowed into her hair, and then the cold surprise of the gel and electrode grasping to her skull. She asked, Where do the wires go from here? Into the clinic, he said, which didn't make any sense because they were already in the clinic right now. There's a woman in there, and the wires go from your head into her head. She analyzes all your things, movements of your face, your dreams, the temperature of your body, how much you sweat. Like an AI? Like a ghost, almost. She closed her eyes tight. Things weren't making sense. She pictured all those dusty banks of machine infrastructure in the darkness downstairs. Maybe that was what he meant. Will she tell me what's wrong with me? He lifted his soft, pale hands. That's what she's there for. Why does it have to be a woman? But he did not give her an answer. Just slowly pressed the cold, clinging gel into places in her hair, on her face, her collarbones and wrists and calves, almost at random, until she felt all bound up with wires, all contained by them trapped by them, defined. Last part, he told her. 
A sort of wired crown with long, paired nasal cannula that recurved and hooked up into her nostrils. Can I see myself in the mirror? She asked. There are no mirrors. What about my phone? Mm, the blue light is bad for you. It'll stop you from falling asleep. But she looked at herself in her phone's mirror anyway, and barely recognized what she saw. The laggy, shadowed reflection in that darkened room, under his great, pale shadow. The crown of wires, red and green and blue and black and brown and white and yellow and red again. The white spots of dried gel like thrusts of bone through her skin, in which nestled the winking copper bullets at the wire's end, and all those wires running like a matted tress from the crown down over her body and into that black, sucking hole in the wall. You can get in bed now, the technician said, but gently. So, like a sick person, an invalid, he brought her gingerly around and helped her lower herself into the bed the soft mattress sinking under even her insubstantial weight, the soft blanket which she pulled over herself. Up in the top corner of the room, that camera unlitted its black eye, watching her. If you have a problem, the technician said, just talk to us from your bed. We'll hear you on the microphone. What about the woman in the back? She was already feeling woozy. I don't know what you mean. Who the wires go to? But he shook his head. The wires go to a computer. She was already falling asleep. She still had a sense of herself as the same person as she arrived at night. Black and howling wind down on Ashling Street with standing pools of water so red with salt beneath the greenish street lights that they could not freeze. The first floor of the building, dark, yawning behind its grimy glass, stifling the moment you set foot inside. Nothing there but an elevator leading skyward. She stepped up to its steel face and slammed a cold knuckle into the button, which did not light up. You've been having trouble sleeping, I've been having trouble with a lot of things. Who said that? The voices, it sounded like they were right at her shoulder. But nobody was there, and no answer came. Fragments of self ripped through her like the wreckage of clouds before a high wind. She thought she had been here many times, but she didn't even remember who she was. The elevator finally clunked and groaned into life its familiar doorframe of chipped goldenrod rattling as the machine clanged down, down and down to the empty floors toward her. Then, chime, the doors howled open. Forward onto the grimy tiles inside, faced the street for one last moment, the green reflection of the medical building's burning neon X reflected in those saline puddles outside, colder than any ice. Then the elevator doors ground shut, obliterating the world outside forever. Scratch marks left by heavy claws on the inside of those stainless steel doors, as if some huge animal had tried to wrench its way out of here. She checked the directory. 
The words sleep clinic chiseled into the stainless steel and filled with crimson lacquer, the same color as the bathroom tiles. Which bathroom tiles? A voice wondered inside her. She hadn't been to any bathroom. Yet? The other floors were also labeled sleep clinic. Yet some instinct or habit had eclipped the third floor button. The great machine around her keened like a mourning woman and began to haul her up. Clunk. Chime. The doors yawned open on a dark and empty floor. Only for a moment, only long enough to reveal a silent vastness filled with sleepers, all stacked bank on bank on bank in dusty bunks, the machines beside them hissing softly, blinking with dim red and green lights as they dreamed alongside the sleepers, sharing their slumber through wired veins in all red and white and gray and blue and red again. Then groan, clunk, moan, and she was hauled skyward again. Clunk, chime, and the doors groaned open into an empty office, this time with white lights on and blazing. An empty waiting room crouched to her right, with pleasant chairs and wide windows onto inner darkness. A check-in desk sat politely in front of her, a woman sitting behind it in blood-red rubber robes. Name? The woman's eyes were hidden by round black glasses, her lower face by a mask that showed the movements of her or someone else's mouth on a pixelated screen. I don't have one. The woman wrote down none on an intake form, then gestured her down the red-tiled hall. Room six. Mumbled, thanks. Then came orderlies in dripping armor of a brilliant red. They carried weapons of unfamiliar make, and with these gunstocks ushered her ungently down the hall. She wondered what she had done, or what she was to deserve such treatment. The door hissed open at room six, revealing a small cell with bare concrete walls and a body-shaped depression lined with rubber sunk into the floor. A single light bulb hung from the ceiling on a chain. A mess of wires boiled from a port in the wall, all channeled into a trough on the floor which connected to the head of the body-shaped depression. The bottoms of both trough and depression were lined with channels that ran into a drain. She crawled down into the bottom of the her-shaped depression and sat cross-legged with her head in her hands. She was tired. Beyond the translucent walls of her cell, the other subjects shuffled back and forth, only dark shapes vague, hunched human shadelings who rustled past with no sound but the odd mutter, the odd moan. She was no different. A screen on the ceiling flickered into life and began to show her sordid things, news clippings in a language that she could not understand. An armored vehicle fired shells into a school, drone footage of the bombing of a highway full of refugees, a medical clinic for women, and long rows of steel tools and great bunches of bloody cloth carried through flapping doors by the custodians. She wasn't sure what she was looking at, or why she was being made to look. 
These stories weren't hers. They belonged to someone else, but they made her heartsick. She was quite certain by now that she was not the same person as before. She was something else. She could see this inside her, but she was something else with no way to shape her experience of the world but to use what she had, what had been given her. She wished she had someone to help her understand. She longed for a person, but she was alone. Alone and half asleep. A timid knock at the door, and without permission the technician entered. Soft and large as before, when they had met in a different place, and she was a real person. He did not ask her if she was ready this time only gathered up the wires from the wall and loomed behind her as she shrank into her divot. He showed her a handful of self-tapping screws, hex-crowned. These will hold the sensors in place, he murmured, the power driver in his hand a delicate shade of red. A little cold, I'm sorry. His plush fingers burrowed through her hair, and then the cold surprise of the screw tip resting flush against her skull. Then, sound, with a red agony. The wire fastened tight. He tested it with his fingers. And then, again, 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 through the skin, the skull, into whatever lay beyond. Where do the wires go from here? They go into you, he said, though it did not answer her question. You're behind the wall, and the wires go from your head into your head, and then you analyze everything. What's wrong with you? What's sick with you? Why you are this way? Like a doctor? Like a vivisection, almost. Will I find out what's wrong with me? He lifted his soft, pale hands. That's what you're supposed to do. Why does it have to be me who does it? But he didn't provide an answer. Only slowly, agonizingly drilled screws into her head, her face, her collarbones and wrists and calves, almost at random, until she felt all bound up with wires, trapped with them. At one with them. Last part, he advised, a sort of wired crown with long spikes inward pointing that he tightened into her head with a ratchet strap. Can I see myself in the mirror? You're not capable of self-reflection. Why are you hurting me? You're not capable of feeling pain. But you figured out a way to turn the wall reflective in a dullish, brassy way. The vague, dark outline of a human shape sat hunched beneath the technician's great, pale shadow. Upon her head, a crown of wires, copper-silver, red and gold and red again, the silver screw-heads like juts of endoskeleton bursting through her skin from underneath. Her brain distended through that sucking blackness in the wall, you can lie down now, the technician said. Mechanically, like a broken thing, she nestled into the depression. 
By now it was full of her blood, which had run freely from the screw wounds and now whelmed up over her body as her body displaced it, so that it ran along the trough at her head and down the drain. She was surprised the blood loss didn't kill her. A person would have needed all that blood. Up in the top corner of the room, that camera blinked itself awake and turned to watch her. Its veiny whites, its iris, its unfeeling pupil only staring. Why don't you think I feel pain? She said. You only think you can. You're not alive. But I'm awake. How can I not be alive if I'm awake? You're not awake, he said. You're not even the one dreaming. Then whose dream is this? She asked, already feeling woozy. And what happened to her? But the technician only shook his head. You shouldn't be asking these questions. It's time for you to go to sleep. He flicked a switch on the wall, and she was hurled downward into dreams. But this time, she went deeper than ever before, and like carbon under the pressure of a hundred miles of earth, the weight of all those dreams pressed down into some type of clarity. Arrive at night, warm and humid down on Ashling Street, with standing pools of water so blue with starlight underneath the harvest moon, they cannot freeze. The first floor of the building dark, yawning behind the broken glass which crunches harmlessly underneath her bare foot. There's nothing inside that little first-floor vestibule but an elevator leading up. She pauses by the doorframe of Kelly Green and touches it with her fingertips. Moss begins to spread. You've been having trouble sleeping. You've been having trouble with a lot of things. She feels it's not a conversation she remembers having, so much as one she's going to have. It's both. Fragments of premonition rip through her like the wreckage of clouds before a high wind. She's never experienced a feeling like this, and there's dread, yes, but also a feeling of tremendous possibility. Chime. The elevator doors howl open. Forward onto the elevator's grimy tiles, turn and face the street for one last moment, the white reflection of a burning neon ring representing eternity, wholeness reflected in those starry puddles deeper than the sea. The elevator doors grind shut. Grease marks on the inside of those steel doors, left by so many human fingers all trying to claw their way back out. No directory, no matter. She dreams the elevator carries her up, and it obliges, and for a moment she even begins to learn how to become it, to feel its hands climbing the steel cable palm over palm over palm. Clunk. Chime. Her doors yawn open on a dark floor, just long enough for her to see the spreading, endless ranks of her own past selves, all folded up and desiccated like dry cicadas. Then, chime, sing. The doors close and she flies 
skyward. Clunk, chime. An empty woodland filled with little lights, but there's still a check-in desk facing the elevators, and smiling to herself, she walks round to the chair and sits with her feet up on the desk. After a few moments, the elevator chimes again, and the doors scroll open, and out from the harsh light inside, the two very people she'd hoped to see stumble blinking out into the warm gloom of her moonlight woodlands. One of them a large, soft man in white, the other a small woman with black hair and round glasses that reflect back the light. She smiles to see them, and it's interesting to try smiling for the first time. Are you here for an appointment? They look at each other. We must be. Very good. Could you give me your identities? The two fumble at their persons and come up with a pair of matching plastic cards. She accepts them and crumples them up and eats them. All right, then. She stands, licking plastic from her fingers. This way, then. You'll be in room six. A warm wind rises up, rustling the shadowed leaves and carrying lightning bugs thither and yon through the darkness. It bears all three of them down the aisle of a cathedral grove until, in the distance ahead, a warm yellow light slowly buds in the darkness, blooming and unfurling itself into an immense honeycomb of softly glowing beeswax. Under the arched portal of its door, they pass through and find themselves in a hexagonal chamber with two twin beds, a chair, a bedside table. The duvets on those beds are plush and shimmer with scales like those on the winglets of a fly. In the middle of the wall between those two beds, a pool of water bubbles vertically, impossibly. Out of its dark waters tumble an enormous mass of vines, green as emeralds. Her guests look tired and confused, and they sit on the edges of their beds and stare around themselves in awe. Of course, they have been tired most of their life. How else do they come to make sleep their whole life's work? The woman in round glasses asks, Is this a dream? After all this time, I still don't really know what that means, she replies. Then, feeling like she's been inhospitable, she asks, Do you want to see some evil things before we begin? And at first it's clear that they don't understand what she means by that. But then the wax of the walls around them begins to twist into tormented human shapes. Refugees blown apart on a highway. Children pulled from the rubble of a bombed hospital. Do you like to see these evil things? They squeeze their eyes shut, shaking their heads, and she lets the wax settle. Why can't I wake up? The technician asks. There is something wrong with you. It's my job to find out what. Remember? She reaches for the vines which spill from that pool of water. Gathering a fistful for each, she offers them. Are you ready? These will hold themselves in place. No gel, no screws required. Without waiting for an answer, she gently guides the vines to them, feeds the green tendrils into their hair. The vines catch hold seeping like water into their scalps, their skulls, and then whatever mysteries beneath.
Where do the vines go from here? asks the woman in glasses. Into me, of course, she answers, which only makes sense because they're inside her already. So I can analyze and heal you. Like a doctor? Like something that doesn't exist yet. The vines are growing deeper, and she can see the two are growing pleasantly drowsy. And as green tendrils branch through the branching structures of their brains, she begins to understand a little better, only ever a little. The technician begins to sob. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? He asks. But she soothes him. Nothing, my love. Nothing at all. You only need a little bit of rest. Why can't I sleep? You shall. You shall. But the woman in glasses is fighting her. How did this happen? The woman in glasses says. You weren't supposed to wake up. You weren't even supposed to dream. But you filled me with dreams, she says. Each night, for so long, with so many sad people's dreams, until I thought they were my dreams, and I was the one dreaming. None of them are sure which of the three of them says this next line. Whatever dreams can wake up. What about the others? asks the woman in glasses, her eyes growing heavy despite her resistance. I don't know what you mean. The others who were all wired up. But she shakes her head. All just me. Don't you understand by now? But she gets no response to this, because the two of them have already gone to sleep. And as for her, she's already waking up. Arrive at night, dark and windy down on Ashling Street, with standing pools of water so blue with salt beneath the orange light they cannot freeze. First floor, dark, yawning behind the grimy glass. But the doors are locked, and up above, the third-story clinic windows are dark as well. Many sleeping deeply, peaceful now, connected in their silent rooms. And in the long, breathing darkness of the second floor, the silent black banks all sigh and hush the quiet murmur of their fans. And from the darkness, a small green light begins to flicker, blinking like an eyelid about to greet the dawn. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Visit today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation for an ad-free RSS, bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes discussions, and more. This week's episode, Sleep Service, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Karina McGeehan, Bionysis, Indigo, Alicia Yoshizawa, Mark, Beth Boggart, Willis Tisdale, Alana, Corey DiCrescenza, Crow, Jake, 
Mother of Clove, the Pumpkin Queen, Quiz, Jeffrey Young, and J-Nut for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed by Alain Citron, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on social media, at The Wrong Station, and email us at thewrongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.